Blog Talk Radio. Hi guys, welcome to Para Women Radio. It timed me out just as I was going live. That's live TV or live um, podcasting for you. I'm Amy Williamson, and tonight it is March 15th, 2022. We have Marie Jackson of Pink Street Paranormal joining us in just a few moments. Um, before that, I wanted to do some house cleaning. Um, so I don't know if you remember last week, I had mentioned that we were going to do a Parawoman um, phone line where people could call in and leave their stories, their paranormal stories, if you wanted to hear them read online and maybe have some opinions <laughs> from me and the listeners. You can do that. If you're interested, you can dial 585-348-7101. Now, this is a recorded um, line. I'll never answer it. So please don't call expecting me to pick up because I never will. But I do invite you to leave your uh, show ideas or even your paranormal experiences, and we can talk about it. Also... I'm looking for someone. I don't know if you remember we did the Prayer World News with Shannon Overlin. Um, she's not able to do that anymore. Um, I want to bring it back because listening to past shows, the Prayer World News is actually turned out to be one of my favorite aspects of the show. If you're interested in possibly joining Paralwoman Radio and reading the news, please, um, you can email me at parawomenradio at gmail.com. Um, just put in there that Paraworld News and that you're interested in being a correspondent. Um, the news just consists of conspiracies, um, weird and strange news, what's happening, um, and really what you find to be interesting in the paranormal. So again, if you're interested in that, go ahead and email me at paraworldnews or parawomenradio at gmail.com. There's a lot of parawomen in there. Um, Let's see what else. Oh, also, I need to get so many subscribers on YouTube before I can go live. And so I invite you to come over to YouTube and join us. Add us, like us, subscribe. Um, we're also on TikTok, Instagram, and uh, I've been kind of playing over at Twitter. Um, and it's usually, I went crazy with the names. It's Amy F. Williamson or Pair Women Radio, or just if you Google it, we'll pop up and we're over there. I, I really want to focus on YouTube. I really need YouTube listeners um, enabled to, so that we can go live sometimes and do live shows over there. I, my struggle continues. I'm looking for something where I can do both, both audio and visual. I think this might be our last night over on Blog Talk Radio. I will upload the shows, but after that, I, I really want us to be able to go live with both audio and visual. So if, um, hey, if you have any uh, suggestions, I'm open to that too, because 
I just cannot seem to find where I want us to go. I know it's out there and I'm going to find it, but right now I just cannot seem to figure it out. So if you have any suggestions, let us know. So again, I wanted to remind you that we need people at YouTube, YouTube, and that's Peril Woman Radio over on YouTube, Amy F. Williamson. Tonight, I'm so excited about the show. It's Women's History Month, Women's History Month, and I tried to put together a month full of shows that really represented what Peril Woman Radio was about, Um, not just people... Uh, doing paranormal things, it's paranormal meaning that's not of the norm. So women doing things that aren't really of the norm, and that's what I'm interested in. So if you're doing something not of the norm and would like to be on the show, you can contact me at amyfwilliamson at gmail.com, or you can also contact us at paralwomenradio at gmail.com. Or, or if you even know somebody who you'd like to suggest, I'm always open for suggestions. I'm always trolling the internet, the World Wide Web for women that I, I just think are fascinating. And tonight's guest, Marie Jackson of Pink Street Paranormal, she, she really caught my attention because I was watching a, I was listening to a podcast and she came on and she had a unique perspective of the African-American community and the paranormal. Now, I have noticed that there aren't a lot of women, African-American women, black women in the paranormal. In fact, I had to think when I was doing the show, do I know anyone, not women and men, black women and men in the paranormal? And I don't think I do. I, I even Googled it and I did come up with um, black men in the paranormal and I don't know if anybody's ever heard of this show it's called Ghost Brothers but and I don't even know if that's still on and I honestly have to say I've never watched it and I think it's on Discovery TV but that's black men what about the African American female perspective well Marie Jackson she's in Kansas City Missouri And she has a unique perspective. She not only is one of the few, if only the only um, public African-American paranormal investigator, but the only one I know personally. So I knew I wanted to have her on to come on and give us this perspective of what it's like to be a, a woman of color in the paranormal field. I I, I don't imagine it's easy because it's not easy being a white woman in the paranormal. So she's going to come on and kind of give us that perspective and why it might be. Um, She also grew up in a haunted house. And I have to tell you, I've heard a lot of paranormal stories. I really have. Uh, And her, every time I heard it. She, she's been on a few podcasts, and every time I listened to her story, it really gave me shivers. It sent shivers up and down my spine. And I, I think I'm pretty confident that when you hear her story, you're going to be having shivers up and down your spine as well. So I'd like to welcome Marie Jackson to Paralwoman Radio. Hi, Marie. Welcome. 
right, Amy. Thank you so much for bringing me on tonight. I am so excited to have you on. Um, I, I do want to do another little house cleaning. You will see that I I build her as Marie de Lopez. Um, I don't know why some in well she'll tell us, but it's actually Marie Jackson. So if you see like on TikTok, yeah. I put her as Marie de Lopez. It's not. It's Marie Jackson, and I cannot fix the TikTok. <laughs> but I did fix over on Facebook and Twitter and all those other places. So. Welcome, Marie, and I do apologize. I should have double-checked before I even did this, so I'm so sorry. Um, it's, it's all good. It's okay. I, I actually just updated the name recently, um, so it was easier for people to find me. So uh, Jackson is my maiden name. But, yeah, it's, it's, it's completely good. Thank you. Thank you for asking about which one is the correct one. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's important to know your yeah. name. So, Marie, yes. Yeah. I am so fascinated by your story. Like I said, I've heard a lot of stories. I really have. And I, I'm not being like ju- uh, uh, braggy about this. I have heard a lot of stories. But your story really sends shivers up and down my spine. And when we get into it, I'm going to pinpoint those exact reasons why. But can you tell me, have you always been interested in the paranormal? Yes, you know, I've I've been so intrigued with it ever since I was a child um, because of what we've experienced. And again, as you stated previously, it, it, it's very challenging talking about it, um, or it was rather um, in my early days just because of me being a black woman. It was, it was, it was just like an unspoken rule to not have these discussions. So internalizing all of that as a child and growing up and becoming a teenager and having abilities and becoming an adult, it, it has, it's been a rodeo, just having to deal with knowing and being so intrigued with the paranormal, ghosts, um, just this entire field of parapsychological research studies and, and just, you know, investigative research. I've always been intrigued with it. Um, I just had to come to a common ground with myself um, when I, I decided to to really pursue what we've experienced and to really find out a little bit more about me and 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 why I have these particular gifts that I chose to kind of suppress over the years. But um, it's, I've always been fascinated with it. Um, I, I I I know you've listened to several podcasts and um, I have an ability that a lot of people. Some people still close to me don't know I have unless they, they listen to my, my podcast or um, hear my story firsthand. But I have the ability to see energy forms, as I call them. Some are, um, they know them more so as ghosts. I have mm-hmm. the ability to see them, and I've had that ability ever since I was a child. So going, you know, growing up as a, um, growing up in, into adulthood, I just kept just, dismissing it, just trying to suppress it to be what we call normal, the study season is something that really exists. So, um, yeah, so I tried to um, um, encompass this normal lifestyle with ignoring everything that I had been through, suppressing it, just kind of disregarding it. But I did something in me just that I, I can no longer run from my truth. I have to embrace it. I have to find out. Um, more about myself and where I came from and what what I was exposed to as a child. So yeah, it's it's, it's a deep fascination that I have, and um, 
having more support system around me um, to really, it really motivates me to keep going and continue mm-hmm. to do what I've been doing with my research um, and having the support for my children, most importantly, mm-hmm. that has really grounded me to mm-hmm. be so so humbled in my investigations. Have you noticed, I'm jumping ahead of myself, I just want to jump ahead and then bring you back to what um, happened as a child, but have you noticed your children having the same ability? Yes, actually, it was so interesting because um, I, um, my, my children never spoke about certain things until I came out with everything that I had the ability to do and what I experienced. So that's when they started coming around telling me specific things. Um, but I, I connected the dots over the years, especially when it came to my son. Um, when my son was four years old, he came to me and told me that um, he was here in this world before. It was just awkward, some mm. of the things that he would do and the music that he would listen to. And um, some of the music that he would listen to was music that from the 60s and 70s. I'm like, where are you getting mm. songs from? And he was like, um, he just remembers them. And I said, well, oh. what do you remember about these songs? I just remember when they came out. So when he turned about <laughs> five or six, you know, I, I really just kind of ignored it. I just let him listen to what he wanted to listen to. And then when he got a little bit older, I mean, the songs just got weirder and weirder. And I was just like, where are you getting this music from? And then he confessed. He was like, Mom, I've been here before. I told you that. I said, been here as in how? So then he tells me the story about who he used to be in another life. He tell, And he's seven. So he tells me, I'm, my name was Paul. I had two grown sons and a daughter and a wife that died in a car accident. And he starts telling me about this when he's seven. I never wow. spoke about it or told anyone about it because I was like, okay, just like me, they're going to think I'm crazy. Mm-hmm. They're going to think my son is crazy. So I, I never spoke about what he told me when he was seven years old. So now that he's uh, 14, he still knows all the music. And we've had an opportunity to just, once I started coming out about my um, experiences and my research, he sat down with me and, you know, we, we talked in very full detail about his past life or his um, reincarnated, prior to reincarnation <laughs> life, as I would call it. And he just was so open with me about everything. And it's just so, intri- it's just so interesting that, you know, my, my, my son is so connected in just a different form and it's a more, more reincarnated form. My daughter, who is my youngest, she came out and confessed that she used to see shadows in the house and that she would hear people speak to her. So, um, but she never told me about it, and she's always been the child that's very, very direct and very, very um, forthcoming with her point of view, but she never told me about that. She said, Mom, I could tell you some stories, and I could tell you what I see. So some of my investigations that I perform, I'll bring some of my uh, photographs or um, audio um, evidence home, and I'll let her listen to it, and I'll tell her, you know, what do you hear or what do you see in the photos, and she was able to see what I was able to see, but not what other people were able to see. So, it, it what, was how old was she when she began seeing those things? Was she, she four she, as well? She was. She was actually around the age of eight, is when oh. she told me she was able to see these apparitions, these energies, these ghosts, and um, and pointed them out just a couple of years ago in some of the photographs that I took at people's houses. 
And she said, there's a goat right here, there's a goat right here, there's an apparition right here, this is a woman. And I was very fascinated. And it just made me feel so much better because I thought that, you know, my kids were going to be the most challenging to get through to. And they were actually the easiest. And they were so accepting because of what they had the ability to do. So it's, mm-hmm. just, it's just such a fascinating, it's just so fascinating. And it just drives me to continue to do what I'm doing, knowing that they, they're knowing that I'm not alone. Well, it's kind of a direct contrast to your experience growing up with your your mother and father. What can you can you take us back to your first experience and how they reacted to it? Yeah, so going back <laughs> to when I was a four year old child and when we moved into this house See, on and the I south side of you Kansas said your Missouri. son. I'm sorry to interrupt, but you said your son was four as well. So I'm just wondering yes, if, like, that four. one, like, something at four happens in your family where you just wake up and you remember. Yeah, and, and my son, it, just like my memory of all the vivid details of what happened and what transpired when I was growing up, I can remember everything from the age of one. I can remember mm. every detail, who was in the room, what they said, what they were wearing. The daytime, I remember everything in so vivid detail, and I, I uh, text myself. I'll go back and talk to my mom and say, Mom, did you have a long dress with yellow polka dots, and were you wearing it on this day? She's like, yeah, how did you know that? And, you know, I'm like, because I remember. So my son has those same abilities, but he remembers so much vivid detail when he was younger. And I'm like, it's so fascinating. And and I, I just want others to know, you know, if you're out there and you have these abilities and you have this, these children who who have had the these special gifts, as I call them, just let them nurture them, nurture those mm-hmm. gifts and allow them to to embrace them and to expand on them freely and don't and don't close them out or make them believe that they're not normal just because of what society deems is inappropriate behavior or mindset mm-hmm. to have. Mm-hmm. So, um, but, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting because that, that is a connecting point, a conduit of, of possibly when, you know, we started expounding on our gifts it's during that young age of four. Mm-hmm. And that's typically when children are most vulnerable to the other elements of energy forms is when they're younger. They're much more mm-hmm. plunges and easily to get through to than a, and an adult who's more uh, strong-willed and fixated in their minds already. So, um, but yeah, that's an interesting conduit is that age range. Mm-hmm. Very good point. Mm-hmm. So yeah. when you first experienced, well, I, I want to get to the story with the Tonka truck. That's the one I'm trying to go for. Oh. <laughs> um, when, yeah. Is that your yeah. first paranormal experience that you remember? Yes, were that is the, there was other uh, moments that I remember seeing people and I never really thought too much into it until I had the physical encounters in this house. So um, when we moved into this house on the south side of Kansas City, my mom and dad were um, doing decent in their life. My, my father was a cab driver, my mother was a, uh, a nurse, and we had a large family that was constantly growing. So being on the south side of Kansas City was kind of like you're doing, you're doing pretty well for yourself if you moved on the south side. So um, the environment was nicer. We lived in a predominantly white neighborhood. We were like one of the only black families in the area in the subdivision that we lived in. 
So when we, the day that we first moved into this house, the day my father drove, pulled into this gravel driveway, something just didn't feel right about this home. It was just such an eerie feeling. So we were unloading some items out of the truck. This moving day, my dad had actually been to the house two days prior and was moving stuff in. So this was him moving all of the final pieces of our house into this new home. Um, the house wasn't big. It was a ranch-style home, probably barely 1,000 square feet, three bedrooms, one bathroom, um, all on one level flat concrete with an attached garage in the backyard. So it wasn't like it was a huge house like you see on these haunted movies, <laughs> these, uh, <laughs> these movies with these big Gregorian-style homes and the wraparound porches. No, it wasn't that. It was just a basic ranch-style home. Um, my dad handed me the Tonka truck that I love playing with because I was a tomboy. So I, I started rolling the Tonka truck around the yard, and I was like, I'm rolling this into the garage because it had a flat area. So as soon as I started rolling my Tonka truck into the garage, it would not move. It was, it was like the wheels were broken, and it would not move. It just literally just, just would not move into the garage. So I picked it up. I started spinning the wheels. Um, I took it over to my father so he can look at it. He looked at it. The wheels was moving. Nothing was wrong. So um, I decided to walk inside of the garage with the toy. So there, in the garage, toward the back of the garage, there was a hole, and this hole had light coming through. You could see straight through to the backyard. So I walk over to the hole, and I'm just nosy. I was so rambunctious, <laughs> so active. Um, had to know everything that was going on. I was so observant, and I was very, very advanced for my age. Um, so I go and I put my hand through this hole that's looking directly into our backyard. Okay, and I get this. I, I just want to say, why would you do that? I uh, just even thinking about putting my hand through a hole. <laughs> God, I, just, I was just one of those kids that you could not tell no to. I was so adventurous. Um, it was just, I was like a little bouncing jelly bean. You, I, I, you just couldn't tell me, no, I had to, I had to discover things. So I, I put my hand through the hole because the hole wasn't very wide. It was kind of like, you know, just, it just, I could see through. It's not too much bigger than your wrist area, just enough for you to get your hand through. So, um, I put my hand through this hole and this electric shock went through my body. It was just so strong. I fell backwards into this garage, ran over to my dad. My dad picked me up. I'm crying. I'm pointing to the garage. I never forget the look on my father's face when he looked over to that garage. He just, and my dad was a tough guy. My dad was one of those really strong-willed. He was in the military. Um, he, was the, um, he, was, he was the dominant person in our household. Anything that my father said, did, it was it was the golden you know it was, he was the one that led the golden golden um, golden lantern in our house. So to see his look on his face be so disgruntled and so confused, I turned and I look and I'm seeing this floating shadow in the garage. So I'm looking at my dad, and my dad's looking in the garage, and I'm like, okay, maybe she sees what I'm saying. So he puts me down, and on the back of the wall in the garage, there's this blurred red writing. And I could make it out a little bit, but not enough because it was so slithered on the wall, like somebody put it up in a hurry, kind of like the previous tenants put it up, and they were like, you know, when you let somebody know what's going on with this house. So my dad walked to the back of the garage, and he noticed this red writing on the wall. So he calls the 
landlord, the property manager, and asked if anybody had been to the house. And apparently, just kind of speeding forward a little bit, apparently prior to us moving in that day, my father had been to the house a couple of days previous. So according to him, there was nothing on the wall. So he called the property manager, and I'm eavesdropping because that's just what I did. And the manager's like, no, nobody has been there. You're the only one that has the key. And then my dad asked him, my dad tells him what the writing on the wall says. And the writing says, monsters in walls, get out. So my dad goes and grabs an, a uh, water hose from the side of the house, and he starts spraying it, trying to get the, the red writing off the wall. And it's kind of slithering a little bit, but it's not really coming off all the way. So then my father starts taking pictures. He used to keep this Polaroid camera with him all the time. He carried it everywhere he went. And it was a camera that had an instant film that would come out at the bottom. So um, he always had that with him. So he started taking pictures of the garage. So as he's taking the photos of the garage, you got to wait for the film to develop. So um, I'm in there. I run back up to my dad because I can tell something's not right with him. It's just not like my father not to keep, like, this masculine profile about him. So he goes and he puts these films, these um, these, these pictures on the table, which is um, in the kitchen, and there's a door that leads to the, the kitchen to the inside of the house from inside of the garage. So I'm following my dad everywhere because I'm like, something's not right. <laughs> something's going on. So I follow him to the kitchen, he picks me up, and then the film starts to develop. So he starts looking at the film, and I'm looking at my dad again. I'm just watching his face. And he's looking at this film, and he goes into the garage. He puts me down, he goes into the garage, and he's doing this comparison to see what's different about these photographs. And then the photographs, and tosses them back on the dining room, the kitchen table, then he goes and gets my mom. So when he tosses them back down, I grab the photos, and I'm looking at them, and I'm doing, like, this little investigative position like my daddy was, and I'm just, I love mm-hmm. my dad. He was, he was, mm-hmm. he was a dress, but I have to. <laughs> like, so, he was your dad. Um, he was my dad. <laughs> he mm-hmm. was a strong will, but, yeah, mm-hmm. so he, um, he, he pulls the pictures down. I'm looking at him, and then I, I notice that there's a shadow in the picture, and every picture that he had, it was like the shadow was getting closer to him as he was taking pictures of the garage. So I'm looking mm. at the pictures, and I go into that garage, and I'm standing there, and I take that picture away, and I see that same dark shadow just standing in the garage. So I run out of that garage, and the garage door closes instantly. As soon as I run out, the garage door closes, and I'm running, and I run into my brother um, Bobby, and he's a year older than me. We are kind of stair steppers. We're like almost all a year apart. So, mm-hmm. and then that's when I scraped my knee. That was just the beginning. That was day one moving into the house. So, was the shadow man? I just have a question because when I was um, listening to this, I I wrote down shadow man. Was it a man with the brim hat or was it just a shadow man? Yeah, that the man with the brim hat was one from one of my investigations that I conducted. Okay. Um, okay. that, but the shadow that we saw was a just kind of a levitating smoke that had a human-like silhouette to it. Okay. And um, my my mother was very passive. She was a very gentle one. She was very submissive to my father. So my father said it wasn't a ghost. It wasn't a ghost. That's kind of how she went with everything. So mm-hmm. um, 
and she was pregnant at the time with my, my youngest sister, Monique. And um, so that was just the beginning. That was day one. A couple of weeks into it, um, we started moving in. Everything was shifting around. My mom is a neat freak. My mom likes everything to be in a very, very meticulous, likes everything in a certain way. So she's redoing the kitchen until she likes it. She gets it right. So we're in the house, and my mother um, walks into the back bedroom. I'm in there with her. I have a couple siblings outside. And then my, my youngest brother, who was still one and a half at the time, and then my mom is pregnant, and then my sister, Melanie, who's a year younger than me. So we're in the house, and then my mother's going back to the back bedroom because my brother just starts bursting out crying. And it was, it was so ear-piercing. So um, she gets my brother, and all of a sudden we hear this loud noise just rush through the house. It sounded like a, a car ran through the house. And my mother, she runs back into the, we run back into the living room, and my mother was initially in the kitchen, which is uh, uh, right across from the, the living room. Very small house. It wasn't big, but it was bigger than where we came from. So all of the dishes are all over the place. All of the food, everything is completely all over the floor. So my mom immediately saw that my brother did it, because my brother William was very active, and you know, a lot of times he did a, a lot of stuff. And um, he would be responsible for it, but there's just no way he would have been able to reach the cabinets and take all of that stuff out in that short period of time. Mm-hmm. So I helped my mother put a lot of this stuff back away. You know, my mom's tired. She's pregnant. Um, mm-hmm. Back then, I think she was about four and a half months pregnant. Mm-hmm. Um, my father comes back home, and I go outside, and my sisters are outside. My mother's in the house. She's still holding my baby brother, Norm. And um, my sister Melanie, she's in the house. So I'm outside to go meet my dad because any time he pulled up, I got excited. Daddy's home. And he comes into the house, and I'm getting ready to go meet some of my sister's friends that live on the back block um, named Missy and Rachel. Um, and they were two beautiful blonde-haired, blue-eyed girls, and they were our friends. And they, well, eventually became my friend that day. So mm-hmm. um, I wanted to let them introduce them to my mother. So I run outside, my daddy just got home, and then I run back in to get my mom so she can meet a Melissa and Rachel. And um, my mother is just standing oh, in I the just, living room. I have a bad feeling about these two girls. Is this, okay. <laughs> I'm on with it now. Okay. Oh, all right, go ahead. You're scaring me, really. You, like, it takes a lot. You but, know, okay. It's it's a it's so much that we went through, and it's like mm-hmm. I wanted to make sure that we weren't crazy, which is what ignited me doing these investigations. And my first investigation was the house that I lived in, and I had to go back to the roots of what we experienced. So it's it's so much that we went through in such a short window of time living there. I'm like, wow. I gotta find I out imagine. if there's other people, and to come to find out, there's been other people, dozens of people that have experienced paranormal encounters in that house that mm-hmm. we've, similar to what we've experienced. So that was just breathtaking to find out that we weren't alone in, in what was going on with, 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 mm-hmm. with that house. So, um, Was it the house or the mother, neighborhood? Was it the neighborhood or the house? It was the entire sector. It, it, and oh. it wasn't even just our neighborhood. And back in the day, they would call these sectors, um, they have, um, they call them uh, townships back in the day, mm-hmm. um, and they're called uh, 
counties now. They've all, they transitioned them into counties and um, local jurisdictions, but they were called townships. So these townships all over the state of Missouri have had paranormal reports, and I can kind of ease into that in a, in a little bit further into our discussion. But, mm-hmm. yeah, like two weeks into living there, my mother's in the living room standing there, and she had this look of fear on her face. She's holding my baby brother and my little sister, Melanie Colstor, and then my, my dad's calling me. I just don't remember his name. He's calling me Mimi, Mimi. My nickname is Mimi. Um, is what my dad would call me. And then he walks into the living room, and, and I walk with my father towards my mom. And all of the stuff that me and my mom put put away is all over the floor again. Everything is all back out of the cabinet. But what, what was interesting was the shadow that levitated and flew through the back, back wall in the kitchen. I saw it, and I'm pretty certain that my mother saw it, but she never admitted it. And she was in such fear, like she couldn't move. She was so, like, traumatized. And mm-hmm. my dad came in, and he's like, what happened to the house? And he said, blaming my brother. My brother ends up getting a whooping for something he didn't do. Um, and that happened a lot. That happened so much. We would get reprimanded for things that took place in the house, that my dad didn't want to acknowledge that he knew it wasn't us. He knew mm-hmm. it wasn't us doing this. Um, one of the most uh, terrifying encounters that I've had so far that has left a scar on me to this day, actually several scars, one of the biggest scars being the one on my forehead, and I had to get eight stitches because of this mm-hmm. encounter. So mm-hmm. um, probably about four months in, and with all these different things taking place constantly, like we've had activities, something has happened every day. So this day was a, a weekday, uh, weekend. It was a Saturday. Alvin and the Chipmunks were playing. Um, it was my it was my favorite thing to watch, and at the top of the bump at every Saturday. And um, my sister puts on the TV, and it's one of those four model old school TVs with the antenna that you kind of got to manipulate to get the good television signal. So Alvin and the Chipmunks is on, and I'm seeing Alvin and the Chipmunks, and then all of a sudden this shadow appears. And you can kind of see it reflecting in the television because I'm on the top bunk and the, and the, the window is there. And most of the time, whenever we knew that that energy was close, it's because we would hear the growling noise. It would be a growling noise, and then it would be a little chilly, and then the temperature would change. It would, that's when we knew it was close. So I braced myself because at that time, during that small stand, we hadn't had much activity. So I thought it was gone, and it wasn't. So this day, um, I'm on the bunk bed. I'm pretending to ignore it, like, okay, if I ignore it, it won't bother me this time. Mm-hmm. So at that point, the growling started getting so loud, I was still pretending that it wasn't there, acting as if I, I couldn't hear it. And I started inching my way towards the little steps to get down the bunk bed. Well, the energy, which I call it an energy four, um, and with my investigations, they are, um, tend to be the ones that are more physically active and can make physical um, um, physical uh, impact with people or uh, objects. So the energy four pushed me off the bunk bed. Mind you, my sister had already walked out of the bedroom. It pushed me off the bunk bed. I flew into the um, door and landed my forehead right on the Tonka truck, the metal Tonka truck that I played with. I 
cut my forehead open. I had I went unconscious. I was bleeding excessively. My parents took me to the hospital. I don't remember the trip to the hospital, but I do remember waking up and the nurse telling me that I had a bad injury on my forehead. And my dad um, was saying to my mom, I could hear them having a conversation, and she was saying, he was saying to my mom that one of my siblings pushed me off the bed. And I, that's when I started coming to because I'm like, no, no, it wasn't. I'm crying and my head is aching, and I said it wasn't. Michelle, because my sister Shelly, as her nickname was back then, I said it wasn't Shelly. It wasn't Shelly, and that's all I kept saying. It wasn't Shelly. It wasn't Shelly, so my mom kind of called me down. And like I said before, my dad. Were you telling them that these things were happening? Were they believing you? Were you saying this was was happening? I was so, we were so limited to what we could tell my father. At this Mm -hmm. point, I I was like, I got to tell my dad. It wasn't Shelly, but my mom was hushing me. She didn't want me to get, she didn't want me to go up against my dad. So mm-hmm. she was hushing me to be quiet. So I calmed down, and then the lady came in and told me, you know, you're going to have to get stitches. You had a very bad fall. Um, and breaking everything down, there's blood running down my face and getting in my eyes, all over my lips. My mom's trying to get the blood off of my, keep putting the gauze on me, and then the nurse comes in. It was it was it was crazy. So by the time we got home that night, because they ended up stitching me up, I stayed there for several hours, and then they um, sent me home. So by the time I got home, my head is throbbing, and I'm crying because I feel like I don't know what to do. I can't mm-hmm. tell my daddy. My mommy doesn't want to let me speak and tell my father. I I can talk to my siblings about it, but it's not it's not the same when they're suppressed just like me when they can't do anything. Who's you, who can you go to? Now, I don't know. And my dad, my mom and my dad, they come into the room. My dad's talking about, I gave Michelle about whooping for what she did to you. I just burst into tears. And I had such a migraine the next day um, because I'm like, I don't know what to do. We're, we're, we're at an impasse. We can't say nothing because my dad's not going to believe it. My mama doesn't want us to go up against what my dad is saying. And we're shut. We're just touched. And we're black. <laughs> he did not have very He probably thought, oh, Lord, Lord, don't let these kids say this. Yes. <laughs> They're crazy. Yes. <laughs> yes, precisely. And I learned that as I got older that, you know, we couldn't talk about it because we didn't want to be labeled. Mm-hmm. And the last thing my father wanted to be labeled as is a strong-willed black man that had no control over his home or his children. So mm-hmm. he forced us to be quiet about everything that happened in the house, even though he knew things were going on. Um, it was just it was just undeniable, just the things that we experienced, like um, my well, brother levitating in the entities. air. Oh, what? Yeah. You said entities? Uh, yeah, you said, no, but wait, levitating? You, yes, you, you saw my, him levitate? Yes. Yeah, the, the thing with these energy forms, they didn't care what day of the time of day it was. They didn't care what you had going on. There was there's no special occasion that these things came out. These things came out whenever they wanted to. So we're in the we're all big family, you know, very small house. We're all sitting in the living room and back then it was so many of us, my mom would put newspaper down so we can sit and eat. So and on paper plates. 
so they're sitting down on paper plates. This is after my head injury, and I was kind of like withdrawn from eating. I was kind of, I was going through depression to the point where I, I attempted suicide, and I put that in my book too. I have a book coming out, but I attempted suicide on two different occasions when I was younger because of this. So, oh my yeah, my brother was, we were sitting in the living room, and my brother was levitated in the air and tossed towards the garage door and hit the wall in front of all of us. And my father rushes in there. My mother, you know, at this point, she's like, you know, Norm, something's not right. We have to do something. Was he sleeping or did it just come and pick him up and pull him? He was just sitting there eating potato chips and a hot dog. And he got levitated in the air and tossed across the room in front of all of us and hit the door. So we were like in shock and my brother, William, rushes over to him to make sure he's okay. And then my father hears the, the noise and the commotion. He comes in there and he's like, what's going on? And my mom's trying to explain to him, something's not right. We can't, we, we, so we got to do something. But she's so soft-spoken. And she's so, just, she was just so, so submissive to my dad. It was your mom like, in the end, though, that said enough is enough, wasn't it? Yes. It eventually, it got so bad to where my oldest sister was in school, and she was coming, she was going to school with scratches on her, and that's when some of the kids at school started noticing that she was coming to school injured, but she couldn't say anything, Mm -hmm. so then it got to one of the teachers, and then the district found out that she had scratches on her, so they wanted to do a, um, to find out, you know, what was going on. And then we, you know, my mother and father eventually lied about it and said that they were roughhousing and they made up a story. Mm-hmm. So once it started getting closer to home and the school district started finding out that my sister was coming with all of these scratches all over her arms, my oldest sister, Missy, my mom was like, I can't do this anymore. So my mom, one night, <laughs> four in the morning, um, we had had an encounter, me and my younger sister, it was, an uh, and, and energy in our, our room, and it, it was horrible. Me and my sister, we couldn't sleep. We woke up, and it was it was a nightmare. So we Did went you to feel my father it? and my father. You called it entities. Did you feel like it was more than one or just one? Oh, yeah. It, it was definitely more than one. More than definitely one. more than one that was present. Yeah. Yeah, my, my father kind of dismissed it for the last time, and my mom, she, she, gave, she couldn't do it no more. Her children were being injured. She had just um, had uh, my baby sister. Um, I had got injured three different times, um, and she just couldn't do it anymore. So she told my father, you can come with us or you can stay here. So she took us, and she left, and we moved in with my Aunt Joyce. And my father eventually came, and we moved into a new house, and that was the start of a new a new experience of me finding out that I could see ghosts. Did it follow um, you? Did any of them follow you to the um, new house? None of those energy forms followed us to the new house. However, we ended up moving next to a graveyard. And oh, our, wow. our backyard was literally a graveyard. So uh, that just didn't help with um, the experiences. Now, the experiences that we had in the new house where I could see the ghosts, um, they weren't as strong as what we moved away from. Now, when we moved into the new house, my father, my siblings didn't experience as much as I did, and they didn't see as much as I did. 
So whenever something happened or I saw something, I would tell them because I felt like, hey, you guys, we went through this together. <laughs> Let's mm-hmm. not forget. And mm-hmm. they started kind of like dissipating away from me because they're like, are you still making this up from the old house? Because we're in a new house and it shouldn't be happening. That's kind of the demeanor that my siblings had towards me. Even the one that levitated? Even the one that levitated. They were were trying to for so much. Mm -hmm. So when we moved to a new home, it was like, yay, you know, we're not levitating in the air. Nobody's seeing the dark shadows, the green eyes in the bathroom. It was like a new beginning, and everybody wanted to forget about it, but it was hard for me to forget about the fact that I could see ghosts. So it started with our neighbor um, that lived across the, neighbor, across the street from us. We, we literally had a, a backyard as a graveyard. And my neighbor, Mr. George, across the street had passed away for, I guess he had been passed away for almost three weeks. But I had been going, I had gone, up, gone over to his house on several occasions. I was probably about seven at this time when we moved into this house and stayed with Ma and George for a little bit. And then um, I'd go over to Mr. George's house, and I would get fresh vegetables in the back of his yard because he would grow green, green beans and uh, lettuce and cabbage right in his backyard, and I would get them, and I'd bring them to my mom and dad, and we would clean them. And that was my routine once a week, go see Mr. George. So I had gone over. It had been a couple weeks since I had gone to see him just because, my father said, don't go over there today. Let him rest. But it was my thing. And I'm like, why does he want me to go see Mr. George? So I went over to see Mr. George, and he would sit in a chair the whole time. And he said, go get your vegetables. And I'd say, okay, Mr. George. And i come back in, and he's still in the same spot. And I'd be having a conversation with him. So this is probably like the third week. And I go home, and I take some vegetables to my dad, but they're they're not – healthy looking vegetables because I'm like Mr. George I think your your vegetables are dying I'm going to have daddy come over and look at them so I take the dead vegetables to my father <laughs> and my father's like where did you get that I said I got it from Mr. George and he says to me how did you get this from Mr. George I said because I just went over to his house and he he let me in and I I, what we and I it because he would keep yeah this is our normal routine so he was like, you couldn't be talking to Mr. George. I said, yes, I am, Daddy. He told me to get some stuff that his plants are not, his vegetables are dying. So you need to help him. Because my father also started a garden. He said, baby, Mr. George has been dead for, he had died. He had committed suicide in his house. He had, and it was all over the news, and I had no idea. So, but Mr. George committed suicide in his house, and he uh, shot himself in the head with a shotgun. So I had no idea. And my dad was like, don't go over there anymore. But for some reason, his house was still open, his back door was still unlocked, and his furniture and stuff was there. Mm-hmm. So, but, but the giveaway was the fact that his, his vegetables had started dying because mm-hmm. they weren't being tended to. And that's when and I Mr. realized, George was okay. sitting in the chair that day that you came he over? Was sitting in the chair. Like every other day, huh? Yes. Every day that I came over there, he was just sitting in the chair He with his back to me. So I, I didn't go in front of him. You know, he, I, I, I gave Mr. George his face, and I, didn't, I had no idea that I was talking to a ghost. So um, I told my siblings about it, and I got dismissed, and I felt kind of like isolated from everyone else. Then that's when 
I started realizing that we had some energy forms in our own house. And, again, these weren't the very strong ones from when we lived on the south side. These were, they were active. You know, they were closed doors, and I would see, like, an older lady move from one room to the next room. Um, and but they weren't as active as the other ones. So as we got older and as we relocated to more houses, I would still see the silhouettes of the uh, energy forms, but I would pretend like I couldn't see them. And I would mm-hmm. pretend like none of this is happening. I would pretend like, um, like um, you know, there's not a, an entity standing in front of me, you know, and I, mm-hmm. I eventually went to school and I started getting friends. So I never wanted anybody to know about anything that I went through. But in the back of my mind and in my heart, I felt different. And I felt mm-hmm. like I was suppressing the truth. So all the years, even growing up, um, I went to college, and I went to college to study psychology, child psychology, um, ended up getting a deg- two degrees in psychology because I felt as if, if I could get through to people who were my age, maybe mm-hmm. they, I could be their outlet, and they could tell their stories to me, and they don't have to feel like how I felt. Mm-hmm. So, but I still felt like I was missing something. I said, I, I got my degrees. I, I'm, you know, I have a family now. I don't feel complete. I felt like I need to know what is going on. Maybe what happened to me in that house ignited all of me having these abilities that maybe it enhanced it. So my did you do ever do research to figure out what was at that first house or the second? Yeah, house? you did. I did um, a six months worth of research and mm. to the uh, Antebellum era and. During the 1800s in the state of Missouri, Missouri was one of the last places to actually abolish slavery. Um, they were very much pro-slavery. And um, during this era, Missouri, absolutely, oh. Missouri was a pro-slavery state. Kansas was an anti-slavery state. They had stopped the Emancipation Proclamation, and um, they were standing by it. But Missouri was one of the states, it was actually the, one of the last states to free slavery, um, um, to abolish slavery, and which was also the state that ignited the Civil War that a lot of people don't know about. So, um, it's a, it, but I've done multiple years worth of research going to different um, 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 uh, historical societies and um, genealogy centers and everything to find all this information because it's not on the internet. So, I started pulling up information about the area. I found out that entire subdivision, and it scales out for miles, was a was owned by a farmer um, named uh, Charles Jeffries. He had, which is now a high school, which is Ruston High School in South Kansas City, Missouri. That was his mansion. And all of the land um, adjacent to his mansion was uh, farmland. And on the farmland during that era, um, he would house slaves. And he would also house slaves and sell the slaves to those who would come in from the south or wherever there was slavery that was abolished. It was like a hub of where you could purchase slaves at. So once they came in and um, they enforced what is called an order number 11, this order was to get whoever was still pro-slavery 
to overturn that slavery uh, status to anti-slavery. And if you didn't overturn that anti-slavery, that pro-slavery status to an anti-slavery status and get rid of all of the slaves, you, everything that you owned was taken away from you. So there were several sectors in Kansas City, Hickman Mills, the district that we were in, that we did in the day. Um, they did not, there were several very prominent owners that came in and took a, a lot of the land in, in South Kansas City, Missouri, and was, you know, selling slaves and have farmland and just, it was, it was horrible. They were killing a slave, they were killing slaves, burying them in these uh, trenches, mm-hmm. uh, 10 feet deep, and which actually ignited the name of the book that I'm putting out, 10 feet deep. So they were putting slaves in these trenches. Yeah. I'm sorry, 10 feet, 10 feet under, not 10 feet deep. 10 feet under. But, um, yeah. So they would bury them 10 feet under because it would prevent them from crawling out. So if they were to try to escape or um, if they um, didn't. You mean if they uh, were still alive, it would prevent them from yeah, coming it would. Oh, yeah, so they would torture them. Because oh. they couldn't climb out of the 10-foot deep. So, and they would just leave them in there to die. Um, or they would throw dead bodies in next to them, and then they built these trenches. So in this sector of land where my house was, uh-huh. was a burial ground for a lot of those slaves. And they, yeah, this is where these trenches were. And over time, once the order number 11 was enforced, they end up having all of the prominent business owners, uh, not business owners, but the prominent um rich individuals who took over that territory, they ended up pushing them out with the order and the union came in and, and eradicated anything that was the considered property of these, 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 these slave owners. And slaves were considered property back then. They were property. So if you didn't relocate your property or surrender your property, it was destroyed, which kind of contradicted the whole effort of the order which was to be post-slavery. So when these troops would come in, if you still have slaves, your slaves would I'm sorry, murdered. And this, uh, uh, the slaves would be murdered? Is that you, you cut out? So the slaves would be, yes, the slaves would be murdered, which <sighs> contradicted the entire efforts of the order. <sighs> and they would be buried in these trenches on this land, on Charles Jeffrey's land. Or the um, the owners would kill their slaves themselves just so they didn't have to surrender them over to the union. So um, they would burn everything you had if you didn't if you decided you didn't want to comply with the order number eleven. They would burn all of your property. It was bad. Not only bad that it erupted a lot of sub uh, military groups and sub guerrilla groups and. Um, some of the groups that you might be familiar with is called the, um, the guerrilla groups or the Jayhawkers. Mm-hmm. I'm not mm-hmm. sure if you've ever heard about the, the Jayhawks yeah. from Kansas. I've heard of so the Jayhawkers. These, yeah. So these groups actually came together and they were, they started taking advantage of this order, this enforcement, and they would go to these different areas and they would loot and steal and kill and rape and it, mm-hmm. it was just, it was the order they took full advantage of it. So um, it's so kind of, violent. It's so it's horrible. So, it's so violent. It's so violent. It's so it's wrong. It's, it's wrong. Exactly. It's so wrong and it's so hidden. It's so mm-hmm. hidden. 
And um, I did two years worth of research just in the in those townships in the state of Missouri, just finding out what happened in each township. So I would go to each area. If there was a business, I would go interview people in the business, ask about if there's been any, you know, disturbances in their location or the history of it, just collecting data and information from every jurisdiction. There was five uh, townships that I focused heavily on in the state of Missouri mm -hmm. um, and within the Kansas City region. So, yeah, so all of that data back. So Charles Spiffy's land was the area where they did all of the uh, very Here's the crazy thing. When the union came in and took over his land, they gave uh, the, the family of Charles Jeffries an option. They said, we're going to surrender the land to the union, or if you guys can build on this land and provide stable housing for people, we will let you keep it. So they had to hurry up and start building. Um, in the early 1900s, they started shifting a lot of the traditional structures of the mansion um, over to the East Coast in Philadelphia. They started transitioning a lot of that back there, and then a lot of the um, the large concrete stones that was around Charles Jeffrey's mansion, they started mm -hmm. donating them to different areas in, in, in the Kansas City region. So in the 1950s, um, it was still nothing but land. They decided they wanted to develop it and turn it into house. So all of the houses that are in this entire sector of land are built on what are called concrete slabs with no basement. If they did not cover up all of the dead bodies or the trenches that they built, they would take over, the, the union was going to take over that territory and they were going to take up all the graves and then there was going to be more charges against those who, who had the slaves. So um, they built on top of these trenches, they built on top of these trenches with all of these concrete slabs, and um, all the houses in the area are all ranched out homes on concrete slabs with no basement, no basement. Did and you uncover any that. information? That, did they move any of the bodies, or they just bare, they just built no. right over it? They just built right over it, built right over it. To, no, so that way they could keep that area. And now all of them is owned by property management companies. They rent a houses out to low-income um, households. Like my mom and dad weren't very low-income, but they were in that median. And mm -hmm. then over the turn of the 1980s to the 1990s, it started becoming heavily populated with more black people moving into the area. So then it became a, an urban housing development. So a lot of the houses that they have now that people are reporting activity on are in those are in those sectors. It's in that sector mm -hmm. where these graves are beneath these homes. Wow. Okay. Wow, wow, wow. That's a lot. Um, so this is all going to yep. be in your book? Yes, yes. This is all going to be um, broken down in my book about everything that's, uh, that I went through as a child, what I experienced as a child. Um, I am in the process of writing a new book. It's a continuation that talks about my investigations and the information that I've compiled um, mm -hmm. and the research that I've put together, the investigations and what I've discovered, um, witness testimonies and um, a lot of information that uh, I've kind of 
been holding on to that has been um, compiled in my archives that uh, a lot of people have gone through with their per- their own personal experiences in their houses. So um, I, I'm also working on getting a bill passed in the state of Missouri. Reverse, they put in place to keep the new homeowners from telling people about any type of paranormal experiences in the state of Missouri. So if you move into a house or if you rent a house or if you purchase a home, in the state of Missouri, they don't require you to disclose if there have been any paranormal reports or hauntings or if anybody was the victim of a homicide because or a suicide. it's called something, isn't it? I forget the name it's, of it, yeah. but it's called something. Yeah. Psychologically uh, impacted property. Yes. That's what I think I read yep. that in your researching you. <laughs> yep, yep, and I'm working with uh, House representatives in the state of Missouri to get that um, to get that statute reversed back mm-hmm. to where you have to disclose going on with the property. They changed it in the early '90s. Um, back then, we ended up moving out of the house. In '89 is when we moved out of the house, and mm-hmm. my mother. Um, my my mother, um, excuse me. There have been other people reporting paranormal encounters in that very sector of where we lived at, but it got so bad, and the reports got so 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 high that they couldn't sell their houses. They couldn't sell their houses. It was such a high turnover rate, and um, but that was back in the 1990s. Were there rumors the that this was what was happening, or was it just like it's not a good place to live? Don't go there. Deal. Yeah, there was, there was just, it's not a good place to live. Don't mm-hmm. go there. This is what I experienced. And people were talking. So mm-hmm. they changed the statute in 1991 to making it psychologically impacted where you don't have to disclose it. So a lot of my investigations in the state of Missouri, I have to be very careful with um, what I disclose because of liability reasons. Mm-hmm. and the statutes that they have in place. So I've compiled so much information and documentation and video video footage from investigations that I cannot disclose mm-hmm. because of the statute. So mm-hmm. unless you are the owner of the property. So if you're the owner of the property, then you get free range to disclose um, whatever is going on because you're the true owner. But if you're renting the property, which a lot of my, my investigations have been from renters, um, I can't formally disclose it. Until was the investigation it. that you did with the man with the brimmed hat, was that in that sector? That it was in the own sector. So the the young lady is the Haji's house um, on Bella Fuente. Uh, the young lady that was in that investigation, her parents owned the house. So they did give me free range to have that discussion with uh that disclosure of that property. She still lives there, and she still experiences the 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 little boy that runs around the house. The guy in the basement. Um, they tend not to go in the basement as frequently, um, but he's still active in the house. Um, there's a woman that's there as well. She tells me that they still experience it, but it's not as scary um, since when I came over and confessed to her what she was experiencing and the type of energy she was facing. The guy in the basement, the hat man, is a energy too. Um, well, the hat man, is uh, he's experienced all over the place. He, so many reports of that man with that hat. 
that's terrifying. Yes. So he just, it's either like a kind of entity or because it's just not one entity. I mean, he's all over the place. And I never yeah. want to see him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had got bad vibes. And um, when my team went down there, you know, um, I, I immediately told them, you know, I'm not going to tell the homeowner, but this is what I see. So when I go into the investigation, the, the main piece of equipment that I use is myself. And I, and I, I call myself the black pendulum. I'm able to have that balance and detect the energy forms and the energy forces that are preexisting in that location. And I'm the best piece of equipment when I go into any investigation. So I'll kind of do a, um, um, just a, a, a visual synopsis of the room and the area. And I'll be able to collect data in my brain, like, okay, yep, there's an energy form here, there's this here, there's that there. And then I go into the formal investigation with my team. So, um, but, yeah, it's, 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 it's an interesting, interesting journey. And uh, it's been very challenging, a very, very, very challenging journey because I'm black. And um, I got a lot of, yeah, I got a lot of negative feedback from those in my community, a lot. Well, you called it a subculture. You said um, people of color have a subculture, subcultural understanding. What is that? Yeah, the, the subcultural understanding, um, it's, an, it's a unspoken rule um, that they don't have these kind of conversations. It's taboo. It's, we don't talk about this. We don't, we don't, we don't disclose this because we've, um, based on research, because I, I needed to know a little bit more why we are so um, against acknowledging the existence of any type of paranormal events, existence as energy forms ghosts. Why are we so anti on that? And what I what I found is that um, with a lot of our origins of our, our our even prior to slavery, with a lot of our prior origins, we've developed this force field of um, we are stronger than what we are facing. So um, anything that poses a threat to our force field, we dismiss it. We act as if it is non-existent, and the more you ignore it, the, the less it the less it is allowed to exist. And a lot of us have formulated our minds, especially in the black culture, to um, thinking that it's taboo, this only happens to certain people because they're not strong-willed enough to handle it. We're strong. We, can't, we can overcome anything. We can mm. overcome anything it's anything kind of like facing. not being able to do the um, psychology, right? It, you can be stronger mm-hmm. than that. Yeah, yes. And it's like we just have this mental warfare with ourselves. And it has gone on for generations to generations to where if we spoke about anything that's outside of our strong world nature, then something else is going on and you are obviously um, not a very stable product of this, this, this urban community or this black community. Mm-hmm. It, gets it has nothing to do with Christianity? Gets, you know, um, it gets dismissed so much and... Um, Say one way or the other if it's directly because of Christianity and the the, the position that a lot of Christians and their their, their perspectives are. Um, mm-hmm. It's just, and I, and I tend to stray away from the whole religious discussion just because it's just it's so never ending in a person's perspective of what is and what isn't and what it could be. Um, mm-hmm. Just 
like, for example, when my mom, I remember my mom taking me uh, to a church to meet with a pastor to get some help. And this is after we had moved out of the bad house. And my uh, my mother, you know, the church, the church uh, minister, the church, uh, oh, gosh, deacon, was uh, mm-hmm. telling my mom, well, maybe your mind is not right with Christ, which is why she's mm-hmm. going through what she's going through. You're oh, not it's your right. mother's fault. She, wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And once they told my mother that, you know, because she was trying to explain to them something's different with my daughter. You know, mm-hmm. she, she she's different. But when my mom went to them to get help, it was dismissed. It was completely dismissed. Um so she never went back to church ever again after that. She never took me back to church. Um, it, it just she just she felt like powerless to where she could take me. So we we just kind of like steered away from being a part of religion because we felt like they weren't going to understand what I was dealing with. So, um, but there's so many so many different components that are missing from. The, the 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 reason why a lot of things are the way positioned the way that they are. There's so many missing components, and I'm still compiling and, and researching daily to come to a conclusion of why specific um, sectors and communities of people respond to certain ways, respond in a certain way to a certain type of energy form. You know, mm-hmm. the, even in the um, you know, like you said, the Christians or the Catholics or the Baptists, everyone responds differently mm-hmm. to these energy forms. It's much more adopted when it comes to ghost encounters or paranormal encounters in the Western cultures than it is in, like, in, in the United States. You know, we are slow to adopt the understanding that there's other things going on in our world. We're slowly transitioning, shifting our mind away from the whole religious component of being the, the reason why or giving us all of the answers to an open-minded understanding. Uh, there could be other reasons why, and this could be happening because of other different forces that we are not trained or, or taught to acknowledge. So, um, well, in the past, is, like, look at our crazy ex-president, Trump. He was the one that had to admit that there was aliens for people to be like, oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And that's a really good point, Amy, because, you know, there was actually built into um, the stimulus package. There was a, 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 um, a, pack, a, a part of that package was to release the files of the Pentagon, Pentagon that held a lot of um, confidential information into the paranormal encounters or the um, um, extraterrestrial encounters or um, reports that we have kind of like blocked people from being able to know is existing. So they slowly mm-hmm. are starting to release those files. They enacted that, which was to be enforced in August of 2021. So they started slowly releasing some of that information to the public. Um, they're probably not going to release everything, but they started slowly no. dropping information to the public about these extraterrestrial reports and um, confidential these confidential profiles on these extraterrestrial beings. So they're mm-hmm. just now starting to give it to the public um, because we're starting to awaken. Like something's going on, and they're mm-hmm. trying to – 
condense our awareness with, with, you know, it's in the Bible. Everything according to the Bible or the biblical format, something else is going on. So people are starting to awaken mm-hmm. and they're starting to realize, yeah, there's another reason why. And um, my biggest goal with um, what I do is to remove the stigma from the black community and to allow mm-hmm. people to have a voice and to, to be that poster child. Um, also being a woman, being that poster child to say, it's okay if you're experiencing this. We can talk about it. It doesn't have to be taboo conversation anymore. We can actually speak about what we're experiencing and be confident that you can convey that information to people and not be judged and ridiculed and criticized and labeled. So um, that's my, my biggest approach with the black community is allowing them to have a free format of engagement but no judgment. Have you had, have you noticed more and more people are coming to you in the black community or is it still the same? Oh my gosh. It has been so amazing to have oh, so many God. people reach out to me and tell me, I, I would have never had this discussion. I haven't had this discussion with any of my family because I didn't think they would believe me. I get that so much. It mm-hmm. makes me feel so good. Um, to let them know you have an outlet. You're not crazy. You're not crazy, and it's okay to, to speak about what you've experienced. So I've gotten such an overwhelming amount of support. I got a lot of I got a lot of ridicule. I got a lot of judgment mm-hmm. as well. But mm-hmm. I've I've gotten so much more support than I have judgment, and that's the, that's so motivating to keep going. What is your mother and your brothers and sisters? And I, I think you said your father's passed away, but what do they all he think has, about yeah. this? He has. Was that when you felt comfortable coming out and talking more about it? Yeah, and I sat down and I talked to my siblings about it. um, Once I started getting a a lot more, um, once I started getting much more public exposure, I was like, I need to get grounded with you guys. You know, how do you feel about me disclosing everything about what happened to us? And they're like, we probably wasn't going to do it ourselves, but since you decided to do it, we are 100% in support of you. Oh, good. Telling our stories. So they are so supportive of, of, of the journey I've been on with um, unveiling everything that we went through and unveiling everything that I've experienced in my individual life. They are so supportive. Um, as far as including them, there's some siblings that are like, hey, I have my brother that goes to my investigation with me. My sister does research for me. There's, there's, so, there's some that are so involved with me, and then there's some that are just like, I don't want to relive those moments. And I, I respect that, you know, but, you know, they're okay with me disclosing what they went through, but they don't want to revisit those moments. Um, they, and, I, and I'm okay with that, you know, but I do, I, they're still very supportive. What about the one that was levitated? Is he, is he the one that comes with you now, or...? Um, he is, is my military brother, Bobby, and he's very, he's very, he's very supportive. Um, he's not as engaged. Uh, the one that comes with me more is my youngest brother, Norman, who was still a baby at the time, so he doesn't remember too many details about what happened because he was only a little over one at the time. Um, but he comes to me with my, he does the investigations with me. Uh, Monique had just been born. She's a baby sister. Uh, but Melanie, Michelle, Melissa me, we all got M names, uh, William and Robert, we all experienced something. So, but, uh, but Robert, he, he's 
post-military. He was in. Um, he served in when 9/11 first came out. Uh, traumatic PTSD, um, mm. and he's not as engaged as as he as I would love for him to be. But he definitely remembers. I wrote down a quote that you put. You said, "This is leading you off down a different trail." Um, it said, "Where there are not rituals or stage that can." take care of these sort of problems, the best we can do is try to understand. Why don't you think prayer and mm-hmm. sage and cannot help? Because of um, just the, the multi, it calms the energy of them, but it doesn't get rid of them. And that's mm-hmm. the misconception. Just based on the, the multitude of investigations that I've done and the follow-ups I've done, um, one an example was a young lady who was living in, the, in, in a house and it was heavily saturated with activity. And she said, I staged and I would pray, and for a while it calmed down, and then it just started back up. And she was like, how can I get rid of them? And, you know, the more she Stage and the more she she prayed, it was it, it just. And the more research I started compiling, I realized that you cannot completely eradicate something that is tied to whatever it was originally um, connected to. So if it's mm-hmm. connected to the land, or it's connected to its final resting place, or it's connected because of um, and the parapsychological studies of the or the scientific perspective of energy forms and ions and how those things and components connect to certain um, certain uh, conduits of the, the world, um, it might be stronger in some areas than it is in others. So when people are saying, I'm saging, I'm doing all this, you're not going to get rid of them. You're going to calm their energy, possibly, but mm-hmm. it's going to be up to you if you desire to stay in that house or stay in that location where that energy is. It's just this big misconception. You wave a wand and they're gone. No. Mm-hmm. <laughs> these these energy forms have existed um, for centuries. So Well, Hollywood has have... like taught us that, you know, someone comes in, the priest comes in, he prays and then it's gone. But I do I I do agree that like I think the prayer and the stage it does calm them. It can calm them. Because I think it calms yes. yourself. So if yes. you're calm then the energy can be calmer. The energy. In your case, and I that, can't even that, imagine how calm that yeah. could even ever be. <laughs> right, right. You know, and, and like I said, children are much more vulnerable because they're like a ball of energy. Their energy levels are 10 times the amount of an adult. So, oh, you to... know, yes, you had like, you, you had a bunch of kids, so uh, a bunch of mm-hmm. uh, batteries in that one house. That was it's just, it was probably of, just yeah, eating of off of everything. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Imagine the activity of, of these and the ability for them to exist in such a strong energy force. It was probably allowed yeah. to do because it was targeting individuals and then together. Yeah. And you weren't even able to say together that this was happening. I just, I can't imagine. I can't imagine. So it led you to wanting to harm yourself later in life? Yeah, you know, and I, um, when I was younger, I, I even tried, and I might be giving away too much in my book, but I even tried to commit suicide twice when I was younger because the injuries and not being able to talk about it. It was like, what else can we do? I might as well just become one of them. 
I might as well just die. I tried I tried taking um, Advil back in the day. My mom used to buy the Advil pills that were kind of sweet. They were coated, um, and they had that sweet coating on the outside, mm-hmm. the brown ones. So I tried overdosing on those. That didn't work. I tried taking um, boric acid, which my mom used oh. to put around the house to keep the bugs down. I tried consuming that. I got really sick one time, and I just vomited. So I gave up after that. I was just like, mm-hmm. just, I guess I'll just be tortured for the rest of my life until we moved. Um, but, yeah, I tried to, to end my life because I didn't want to continue to go through what what I was experiencing. And, I mean, I, I had this scar on my head. Um, my dad came up with a nickname for me. He called me Frankenstein. And it was just such torture. It was such torture, emotional, physical torture. I just didn't want to deal with it anymore. Um, that breaks my heart. So yeah, yeah, it was it was it was tough. Um, but um, but we we definitely we definitely overcame a lot and together. Um, that's how funny my brother sent me pictures of my father. He doesn't even know I'm on a podcast. Did your father <laughs> did were those photographs that your father took both Polaroids were those ever kept or was anything ever kept? Um, no, and I, and I wondered so much where those photographs went. I think he might have disposed of them or something. Mm-hmm. Um, the last thing I remember is him sitting them um, on the table and then just kind of walking away, and then he took them and put them in the dashboard of his car, but I never saw them after that. I don't know what he did with them. He probably wanted to get rid of the evidence. and It yeah, had to have been hard on him. If he was like the male figure that led the family and the thought that he couldn't protect the family from these things must have just tormented him. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I just not, yeah. So it was easier for him to tell us it wasn't happening than to tell us it was and he not being able to do anything. My dad also was a really bad gambler. Um, um, in Missouri, he was a cab robber and he gambled a lot at um, the Woodlands racetrack they used to have back in the day. Um, it was a dog racetrack, so he was mm-hmm. so um, he was so into gambling that he would lose a lot of our money, and mm-hmm. um, that was one secret he hid from my mom. But I I knew about it because I used to follow him around all the time, and I would see him <laughs> talking. But, <laughs> but that was one one thing. So he couldn't really we didn't have the the financial uh, support to really move. Um, especially our large family, you know, we had to really plan it out. Mm-hmm. So, um, but yeah, my, my dad, he just, he just, it was better for him to pretend like it wasn't happening than to face the truth. And he and definitely did didn't want to being black. No, no. Well, wow. That, the pressure had to have been intense on the whole family. And I can't imagine this all happening and not being able to really talk about it. Yeah. Yeah. Like you're dying on the inside, and you can't, you can't. You have a muzzle on your mouth. You want to scream so bad, but you can't. And you don't know who to turn to. You don't know who to trust. Who's going to tell your dad, or who's going to slip up and say something to somebody else that could cause shame to our family? It was such a horrible. It's a horrible feeling to feel like mm-hmm. you don't know what to do when you're being tortured every single day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mm. It's emotionally damaging to a child. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's so wonderful that you, well, I mean, 
yeah, it is wonderful that you've had these experiences and you can, in turn, when your children come to you, you can be like, yes, I hear you. Mm-hmm. I understand. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm so much more nurturing than anything that my kids are experiencing. Sometimes too nurturing. But if they ever come to me and they're like, something doesn't feel right or mama, I, I had a bad dream. Or, you know, I, I, I dreamt like I, one day my daughter told me about um, her dreaming about my father, and he came to her and told her she was gifted in her dream. And um, I told her, just get your dreams down because your dreams are telling you, it's leading you in a direction, and you, you need to be able to document these directions. Like I take um, any dream that I have that's vivid and I can remember in, in great detail, I document in a diary of dreams. And then it's connecting the dots to something that is to come. So um, I'm very open does with your daughter know that. Has your daughter ever met your grand, her grandfather, or was this just? Yes. Yes, yeah. they've, okay. uh, they've all met their grandfather. Yes. Okay. Um, so, but they didn't know about any of my history until 2016, which is when my father passed away. So I didn't come out with anything until he, he passed away. What made That's you when I decided to, feel comfortable? I mean, what? I, why didn't you come forward? Was your father still uh, not wanting you to talk about it? Yeah, I felt like you know, even at that age, in my in my thirties, I was like, my daddy still rules that that domain of what happened mm-hmm. to us. We can't say anything about it because he's still living. If he gets out, you know, he's. We still, we were still inferior to my father. Mm-hmm. We still looked at him as a leader, even though you know he got older and he was starting to decline and he was in a nursing home. I just felt like, as long as he's alive, I cannot say what's going on. I can't speak on it. When he passed away, it was like I had a really strong dream that was pushing me into unveiling everything that I had been through. It was like I don't have to hide it anymore. I don't mm-hmm. have to worry about if he's going to find out. I don't have to worry about if anybody's going to tell him and how he's going to look at us. I don't want to. I don't have to worry about him feeling like shame is going to come upon him if if others know what happened to us. So, I just decided this is the, the beginning of my new life, and that is me telling the story since my dad is not in the picture to to muzzle me. Mhm. So you've mentioned that you have a book, 10 Feet Under, and you're working on a second book. Do you have any investigations that you're working on right now? Yes. Um, I have an investigation in Austin, Texas that, I, that I'm working Ooh. on, and I have an investigation that someone just notified me about three days ago. So i got to do what I call a preliminary investigation, just make sure that there is, in fact, something on at the home. Because I do get a lot of uh, bogus, uh, bogus and, um, investigation submissions, so I have to filter through the bull crap. Yeah, there's a lot of people that just get lonely. They want company. Come, somebody comes to the house, and then there's um, a lot of weirdos out there. So uh, I have to filter through these carefully before I take on any investigation, just to make sure it's not a bunch of baloney. And mm-hmm. um, I am required to get some type of audio or visual evidence of something, or there has to be a lot of credible witnesses other than just that individual before I'll take on any case because there's there's a lot of people that wouldn't mind trapping a 
pretty women like myself in their makeup. Oh, yeah, you're gorgeous. You're absolutely beautiful. I don't see that a scar on your forehead anymore. You are just amazing. Yeah, you know, your skin is pristine. Thank you. Thank you. And, it's, and that's, been, that's been an issue, too, with me, um, being a beautiful black woman. And mm-hmm. People look at me like, this is what you do? Absolutely. I sure do. This is what I do, and I absolutely love it. Um, so I've had to overcome that obstacle of the physicality so people can accept me because I'm not your normal, average, rugged-looking woman. <laughs> no, you're not. Like, you know, I, I'm not that. I don't fit that physicality of what people see. Mm-hmm. So, um, and I'm changing the stigma on that. I'm changing how, how people see people in these paranormal mm-hmm. positions. No, she doesn't have to look rugged. No, she doesn't have to look like she's been through years of age. just torture. You know, she doesn't have to get that appeal. Changing it all the way around. And, um, but, yeah, it's, 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 it's a lot of things that I've had to so Pink Street Paranormal yeah. is your group. How, how many do you have a large group, or is it just a few core people? Yeah, it has, yeah it's just a few core people. And um, um, uh, I had two individuals from the, the, the video, the, one of the videos that I think you might have checked out. Um, they still are active with me, but kind of on a hiatus a little bit because they have their own little things going on, Darren. Um, which is one of my closest friends. He has a uh, a gallery um, in Independence, Missouri. Which he actually the gallery is in a haunted location, and oh. it's very very haunted, very active. And his gallery is to showcase just different types of artifacts and artwork and just gory stuff. Um, so he has a lot of things that he hosts there. So he kind of got pulled into that. And then uh, my other friend Jeremy. He was also in the video, so he's so active that he's, he's, he's got 12 kids. And he's got a very large family, and he's into he's a coach in football, um, coach in basketball. So mm-hmm. he, he's very tied up, so I told him I don't want you guys to be, you know, take away from your schedules whenever you're able to be a part of it. So that's when I started doing more work and research with my siblings, and I started putting them into it, and now they're a part of it, and they go on some investigations with me or come set up a equipment to do research for me. So it's pretty awesome to kind of have the family connected mm. to it and involved in it. The black family that's involved in the research is, is just fascinating. It just takes a different tone to me. That'd be a great TV show. <laughs> um, yeah, and that, yeah. What is ghostly yes. TV? I couldn't. What that that's attached yeah. to you as well. What is that? Yeah. So ghostly Pink uh, Paranormal is the name that I initially came up with with my investigative research. Ghostly mm-hmm. TV is the I guess you can say like the umbrella of everything, mm-hmm. and okay. that's where I'm going to start releasing all of the um, archives of evidence that I have on these investigations once I get the clearance in. Missouri, and then it'll have um, just a lot of just disclosing of these paranormal events on Ghostly TV, and then um, it'll be kind of similar to that video that I've already done and put out. I'll talk about the history of everything and the encounters and much more, uh, much more, much more smooth process. I feel like I've I've come a long way. So, but yeah, Ghostly TV is, is the name that I came up with. Actually, it came to me in my dream. Um, 
connecting the, uh, the the links of the ghost activities and mm-hmm. just connecting the dots of it so that way you know what you're facing or, or, or where it came from, where the origin of it is. So that's how I came up with Ghosting TV, so that is the actual name of my um, my parapsychological research and what I'm going to be releasing to the public. And how do the people find you? Where are you located? Yeah, I'm I am located web. in Kansas City. Oh, on the World Wide Web. Yeah. So, um, I'm located in Kansas City, Missouri. Um, mm-hmm. I reside in Kansas City, Missouri. So if you were ever to, you know, be interested in, you know, me doing an investigation, I don't charge for investigations. Everything I do is 100% just for my research. So, um, and to give people a peace of mind to know that they're not crazy. So um, you can reach me at uh, ghostlinktv at gmail.com if you want to email me documentation or I'm on um, I'm online on YouTube on um, Facebook as well as Instagram as Ghostling TV um, you can search Marie Jackson Ghost Girl of Kansas City my profile does pull up and um, but yeah those are the, the primary platforms you're able to connect with me on Great. Well, Marie, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, This has been just fascinating and informative and, and I can't wait until I, I I actually, I didn't know you had a book out. Yeah. The book was initially supposed to release in October. However, when the new wave of COVID scare came the end of Mm -hmm. last year, in December, January, it pushed me back with getting my book officially released, but they are working to get it released within the next couple of weeks because my editor was off and they had COVID. So I'm doing self-publishing. So okay. um, the book should be available within the next couple of weeks, and you can search 10 feet under, and that's T-E-N feet under. And it's it's not on Amazon, or will it be in a... Uh, I I will set it up where it's going to be accessible on Amazon through um, an online version, um, and then I'll have a lot of copies that you can order, you know, hard copies I'll have on hand. Okay. Well, so when it comes out, just let me know, and I'll I'll throw out some emails and let everyone know um, that it's out and that they could order it. Yeah. Yeah, everybody. I've been having so many people hit me up. Is the book ready yet? Yeah, I can't. Those are right. I cannot. I can't get it to you right now. It's already written and the content's available. I'm just waiting on them to finalize publishing. But I understand they had to let a few people go at their location, and things are kind of getting ramped back up. So I'm excited. Um, I'm really excited, and I'll definitely keep you posted when everything gets released and um, the methods in which you can purchase the book. Oh, thanks. And thanks for joining us tonight, Marie. It's been wonderful. Well, you are very welcome. I'm glad I was able to get on here and, and speak with you and um, share my, my story with everyone. So thank you for having me. Yes. We'll stay in touch. We'll stay in touch. And, um, again, thank you. And let us know when your book comes out. I will do. Well, I appreciate it, and uh, I will talk to you soon, I hope, and um, you continue to do a fascinating job with this this women's paranormal 
um, show you got. I think it's absolutely amazing because we uh-huh. need more women we in do. the field and to be acknowledged and recognized. So you are fascinating for putting this together. Oh, thank you. I think it's so important that we recognize one another and um, support each other. Definitely. So we will be in touch, and it was a pleasure being on your show, and you, okay. you enjoy your evening. Thank you. You too, Marie. Bye. Thank you. Goodbye. Okay, that was Marie, Ghost Link TV, Pink Street Paranormal. If you want to reach her, you can go to, uh, she's over on uh, YouTube. I did notice that she has quite a following over on YouTube. Um, If you have any questions for Marie and you can't figure out how to reach her, you can reach me and I will be happy happy to direct you her way. Um, And until then, I'll see you next week. Bye, everyone. Don't think the rain can wash this away. This wound is too deep.